My name is Kim Rothwell, and this is the Return to Embodiment. In this episode, I finish up my conversation with Chris Larson. Chris is a teacher of mine, and he also provided supervision to me after I became a therapist. There are snapshots of my life that he has been present for and witness to. First, when I was a student, and I was in a supervision class, and there was a group process that was going on about uh, something I was feeling that I couldn't put a name to. And Chris actually asked me to push my hands against another student's. And I felt something coming up. And he said, I just want you to let it out. And it was a sound that I'd never made before. And it was something I did not have a name for. Although one of my dear friends called it anguish. And it was something that moved out of me in sound and in the act of pushing with my hands. And then it was gone and there was something changed. A second story that I have to tell is one of my own anxiety. So for a long time I had anxiety and the way that it mainly arose was in my face flushing, becoming red. And part of the challenge with this particular type of anxiety is that there's indicators that it's coming and that further perpetuates and ensures the light show, the the glowing, the flushing, because any attempt to stop it actually makes it worse. So I was in a supervision session with Chris and we were talking about anxiety and my anxiety particular and how it shows up. He asked me to show him. He called it forward and we gave it a name. It was a burning and he asked me to burn. And in that engagement with this phenomena that was so uncomfortable and so connected to the emotion of shame. He held space in a way that allowed me to have it, to hold it, in a way that gave it back to me, as he says, as something that's mine, as something that might have information to tell me, as something that I don't need to fear. And my relationship changed with it in that day. It's not to say that I never have periods where I flush, but I have compassion for it now. And it actually reminds me of my relationship with Chris and that experience when it arises. It's been transformed from something that I wanted to hide into something that is just a part of me, my inner fire. So those are my stories about Chris Larson. And without further ado, I welcome you in listening to this final chapter of our conversation. I was talking about vulnerability last night, and um, 
she's come out as a lesbian and she's married with two kids and she doesn't know how to tell her mom and, 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 and then her dad called and he, she hasn't seen him for years and she would wish that he called more. And I said, you know, this is a story of vulnerability, this story here. No, she said, you know what? I meant to say this to you recently. I said, what? She said, I'm only vulnerable with you because you've earned it. And that was that meant so much to me. It just meant a lot to me. And I thought to myself, curiosity is such a healer. I mean, it's coal. Curiosity opens acceptance of love. I think I do that innately. I've always been that kid. Always been curious. Always meant to open to everything and anybody. And I accept all of that. And whether or not it comes just to having Tourette's as a young age, like I just wanted to be like, this is who I am. And I love people. That's one of my faults is that I just love. I try to, I mean, even politically, I try to love the people who are nuts. I try to find something good in everybody. And I think that's what I love. I love that. I think that if you're nosy enough, curiosity as you're calling it, um, <laughs> people open up, you know, like. And, and there's also something about, you call it nosiness, that is interest and seeking understanding of someone. Yeah. That in those two things yeah. value someone's experience. Yeah. And if we're talking, if we're relating it back to the the two stories that you that you told of your lover and of Christine Caldwell, they were both interested and yeah. valuing the ex, the unique experience that was yeah. Chris Larson. Yeah. Well, they also gave it back to me. They gave me back my interest. I think that that's really what it's all about for me as a therapist. It's not so much that I'm curious and interested in you, but I'm inviting you to do that with yourself because that's where real therapy starts. That's when it starts. It's not about me being curious and interested in you. It's when you start going, oh, and all of a sudden it clicks on. If someone is interested in me enough, then I must be interested in you. If someone's curious about me, then I must be somewhat, I must be worth someone's curiosity. <clears throat> you know, so when she said to me, I earned it, my question to her was, have you, have you earned your own vulnerability yet? It's not about the world. It's not about you haven't earned it yet, so I'm not giving it to you. It's have I earned my own vulnerability enough to go ahead and give it to the world? It's not something that you put in a bank account like, uh, 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 you know, like I earned it, so I'm not going to put it and save it. You give it. It's, it's, you're free now. You go ahead. Go ahead. So that's what I like about therapy. And that's, why I still, that's why I still believe in it. And almost always underneath, for those of us who don't have Tourette's, and I would say maybe for those people who don't have an anxiety disorder, for example, because that's also something that is coming up involuntarily from an implicit place very mm. often. Mm. Um, I don't have control over it, mm -hmm. but it's consuming my mm. body. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we don't have any of those teachers, then it's easy to exist without acknowledging and holding the phenomenon that are propelling us through our yes. life. Yes, right, right, right. 
Yeah, we, we, we are we are an information gathering society <clears throat> that goes and buys you know the book on how to get rid of my anxiety. And then they buy the book and they try to do it and it's not working. That's because the therapeutic relationship is a page and words and you. We need each other. We need each other. We need to hear the voices on that page. We need the experience of being in the energy of someone else to hold that stuff that goes on, you know? <clears throat> because I think that therapy is also still research. <clears throat> it's still happening, you know? So we need each other. We're living in a time when there's so much more isolation. Yeah. Yeah. Drawing us from one another. Yeah. Going to this phenomenon of technology <clears throat> and the pervasiveness of screens, the virtual space has many benefits to us, but we're seeing with the spiking depression rates, the suicide rates going up, we're seeing people um, suffering. Yeah. But I think what you just said, like, we need each other. Yeah. Is where it's at. <laughs> we need each other. Right. We're living in a time when we can choose not to connect interpersonally. It's a hard one to, to discuss because I come from a generation that wasn't that. And so when I talk about it, it, it I feel like the old guy who's like saying, no, don't go do that. It's going to bring it down. It's the end of the world. Elvis Presley, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, but I come from a place of being a therapist and not just an old guy. But there's something to be said about being with people. So it isn't about, I think that all screens should be, you know. Abolished. Abolished, correct. Um, but, you know, even even that kind of idea of, you know, you got a group of people together, you're, you know, you're hanging out and you're talking and someone says, you ever see that movie? I forget what the movie was called. Does anyone remember that movie? Everyone goes to their phone to figure out what the movie was. And I always say when I'm in that group, put those away and let's try to think of it. Use our own brains. Because I'm still the brain brains. guy in the, in the room. I'm the brain guy who says, your brain wants to try to figure it out. Because when you get the aha, it feels so good. You go, ah. Oh, that's so true. Correct. There's like a relief. To Correct. It, right? Yes. Now, I brought that up recently to a, a group of younger folk. And they said, yeah, but when you go on your phone and find it, then it's done. And now we have more time to talk about something else. I was like. Oh, well, that's an interesting kind of idea. Like, why are we spending so much time trying to figure out what that movie was? Yeah, but the idea of spending time trying to find a movie is an interconnection. We're all trying to do something together. And there's nothing wrong with that, even if it takes a long time. Or let's watch how long it takes. We don't have to immediately go to the phone. Let's give ourselves a five minute. Let's all try. Let's all be inside some, you know, mind sight with each other. Like that. We're trying to find it. Oh, you're getting it. You're getting it. There's something exciting about that. And let's hold on to that a little longer than just done. Now, next done. Now, next. It also seems like you're holding space for the unknown. That's right. Because you don't know. And you're bringing the attention back to what is because it's perhaps the unknown 
mm-hmm. or the uncomfortable mm-hmm. or the unclaimed. Well, I'm inviting the guest, which I don't like when my guests come up, my Tourette's, because it's more painful. I don't know how to manage that one. So metaphorically, it's the same thing. I'm saying a new tick's going to come up and you're not going to like this one. But just know it leaves. And like psychotherapy, it's going to come back again. But each time it comes back, you're a different person with it. You know, which then goes into the neurobiology of personhood. I'm different across time, you know. And comfort with the process of learning. The process of not knowing. The process of being uncomfortable. Right. So, yeah, it's great that we have all this knowledge in front of us right now. And we can go right to and find it. But gone is the mechanism of finding it. But like what is lost interpersonally and what is lost in terms of the, my own process of experiencing pleasure, relief mm-hmm. around the aha uh-huh. and humor, like the fun of it. Yes. Right. Well, again, that might be our affinity toward it, our aesthetic. I think what gets lost is critical thinking because I don't have to think anymore. I can find it. It makes me think about the, about like Star Trek, the more (laughs) robotic creatures. Yes. Have more narrow emotional capacity. They're flat. They're flat. So if I don't engage in the unknown, if I don't engage in the, discomfort of uncertainty and working with another brain and experiencing tension, frustration, um, humor, relief, all of that. Is there something that's that we are losing as a civilization? Well, and you might be onto why we're more depressed and anxious and suicidal when we start losing that. Because certainly as an educator, for the years I've been an educator, what started happening was um, wanting information given to them and not finding it. So tell me what I'm supposed to know. So I started getting more students going, how am I supposed to study for your exam? And I would look and go, what are you talking about? How would you study? Open the book and read. Well, what's on it? Everything. What are you fucking talking about? You if just we, stress to everybody if else we, who's a prospective student. That's correct. That's right. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying is that that the idea of critical thinking and discovery is now what stresses people out. I don't believe that. I believe what stresses people out now is the way they're finding the information. That's the stress. That's, it's, a, it's a denial. It's almost a, a, it's a depersonalization of the way in which the body does it normally. We're not in the body anymore. We're in someone else's, the, the body of information that's on, a, that's on a screen kind of thing, you know. And so the idea of, I don't know how to do that. That's the question. Go ahead and say that. I don't know how to do that. I've lost contact to that. I don't know what that is. And I'm afraid... Of not knowing. Of not knowing. And I'm uncomfortable with the consequences if I fail. Correct. So this idea of getting information right away is is, it feeds right into perfectionism. I got it. Found it. You can see that in a group. The first person who finds it on their phone, 
It feels so good. Found it. <laughs> it's like, yay. Aren't you quick? <laughs> Found it. Yeah. So, so speed and efficiency. Absolutely. And. So what you do is you say, okay, so I'm going to ask a question. Now everyone get your phones out and ask a question and you ask the question and then you say, now the last person who finds it gets the A. And you see who puts their phone down and tries to use our way. Or who finds it but doesn't come forward yet. And then you watch the anxiety of wanting the perfectionism because you know they want to say it right away. But you're saying you have to be the last one to find it. So they have to lie then saying that I'm not going to find it because I just <laughs> found it. But they have to lie like they didn't find it. What's when that? everyone's sitting around with the answer but refusing to tell. Well, you say, who was the last one to find? Well, I don't know, they would say, because I don't know who else. I don't know who else found it. And then you say, well, I wonder if you could ask. I wonder if you could go to the people in the room, the community that we're trying to build, and ask if they found it already. Because everyone was there. They, they could have been like this and, and looked around to see how are people using this mechanism, which is interesting. We, can see, we have these mechanisms now. We're not, we're not leaving them. Right. It's here. It's here. But are we, all, are, we, are we looking at how people are using? You know, I started taking the train now to go to Adler. So I'm taking the train like every, you know, every Tuesday. And I'm standing there and I, everyone's on the phone. So what I do now is I count how many people are on the car that I'm in and I see how many people are on the phone. And I go, oh my God. And there's this guy next to me and he's swiping left. These women, up yeah. or left, up or left, yeah. up or left. And I'm right behind him and I'm a little taller. And he stops and he looks at me and I was like, say it, go ahead. Like, what are you looking at? Yeah. Because my whole thing is if you don't want people to know, then do it at home. Because there's no such thing as privacy anymore. And if you believe that there's something called privacy, someone's lying to you. Right. Privacy right now is reserved for your own home. If you're connected to the internet, if you're connected to a screen with a camera, you can't guarantee privacy. That's right. I'm not supposed to be watching how you just look at women and swipe them. So for me, again, it's... If you're not ashamed of something, then put it out. Be who you are. Swipe, talk, whatever. But don't think that I'm not watching. I'm not watching with shame. I'm just watching. Talk about the witness. I'm just being an outside witness, just looking. I'm just looking. But I get a lot of, what? What is that? And I'm like, what is what? The eyes of looking at people have become a place of shame anymore. So it's not even like a look, like, what are you doing? It's just looking at people now inside of their stuff, which is, you're not supposed to be looking at me. And again, as therapists, we're nosy. We're going into people's reality all the time. I'm nosy. And I'm real nosy at the social construct right now. I'm very nosy about it. I mean, there's times where I want to walk on the train and just say, what is up with all of you? What? And I just want people to talk. I just want to be like that. What's up? Because I'm nosy. So there's my rant. But people really truly believe, I think, that their little bubble no one can see in or supposed to look in, which is interesting. You know, there's there's a sense that people have that their phone and the screen of it 
is an extension of their body. Yes. The privacy of their body. Yes, right. When in actual right. fact. Right. That's the blur. That's the blur. It isn't. I feel that with like um, my phone being touched even. Oh, wow. I'm like, don't touch that. That's my phone. Wow. (laughs) That's like like caressing my thigh. (laughs) There is a passcode that's for my fingerprint only. Yeah. What's on my phone is my phone. So there's there for me, I definitely have a sense that it's a extension of a private space. And yet I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn. And so there's a voyeuristic aspect too. There's like the equivalent would be like I you know, leaving your windows open while you're dressing in your room. Yeah. I'm gonna let this be seen, whether it's a thought or it's a rant. Which is fine. Yes. For me, it's when someone is angry when someone looks in the window then. Right. How dare you? Yeah. I get to do this, but you don't get to look in. Well, and then there's the piece where people <laughs> are putting things out. And as soon as it gets put out, it gets attacked. Yeah. Or who they are. You know, you're going for a job interview and everything about you that is in the virtual space of the universe can be searched yeah. and scrutinized. Yeah. And, and then, then all of a sudden. They can't believe that someone would do that one in the interview. Can you believe I looked that up? Yes. Well, that's my private life. Oh, yeah. Privacy is a really different thing anymore. Have we gone down a different curve? Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I like curve. <laughs> it's good. Went from research and therapy to new technology. Mm-hmm. And what it's doing yeah. to relationships. Yeah. Maybe there's many, many things that it's doing, but one of them is it's confusing privacy and exposure. Yeah. I still like when I walk down the street and I see someone coming toward me on their phone and they're not even like looking and I walk right toward them right in the same path. And then right when I get right up there, go ah, like that, you get scared. (laughs) (laughs) I get scared. I still do that. I think there's a nice, we should be oscillating at least like oscillate, take in, take in everybody. And then go back and take in everybody so that you know what your environment's doing. We get these things from Columbia, like, you know, the latest crime, the latest crime, the latest right. crime kind of thing, you know. And there's always, like it says, go off your phones. People are on their phones and their phones get robbed from them. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're oblivious to the fact that. Ah, uh, yeah. People are watching you. And people are going to steal from you. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know what we're, where we're going to go. It's really helpful for me to talk with you about this because, because of the Tourette's, embodiment is something that you're always conscious of. And that's something that you draw upon with therapy, with teaching. It's just the water within which you swim and then you invite other people into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been very connected to 
my body and the experience of knowing in and from the implicit and all of that. Um, but it's been a journey of coming to value and trust it as much as my other ways of knowing. Uh -huh. All of that is informing my interests. But then I had a conversation with my sister where I just asked her what embodiment meant to her. Mm -hmm. Because I'm also curious. I'm interested in what your average person thinks about in terms of embodiment. Oh, yeah, so yeah. when I asked her, she said, well, you know, one of the times when I felt most embodied was when I gave birth. Like she had an experience of trusting her body, noticing everything that was happening in her body, um, being empowered, feeling empowered. She had a really great birth experience. I know not everybody does. And so it was, it was likely an experience where that bottom-up process was really profound for her. Mm -hmm. You used um, trust twice in that conversation on um, you wanting to trust your body and your sister trusting her body. And I'm curious to that. I'm curious to this thing called trusting the body. Um, and why would someone not trust the body? You know, what is this thing called trust? And why would someone not trust something that is just, it's like, you know, like I don't trust my heartbeat. Like what? So I would say if my heartbeat is <laughs> having a panic attack, if it's pounding. And so my body is communicating to me, I'm in danger and I'm experiencing fear of my body processes as well as perhaps my face flushing and the social ramifications of that. That would be an example of feeling betrayed by my body. So trust in that conversation is about control versus out of control. It's about, um, it's probably about vulnerability. So you don't trust that your body's not going to throw you into a vulnerable state in front of a bunch of people. Yeah. But I'm wondering if I'm, I'm listening to an able-bodied person right now. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Because again, going back to like, I'm really acquiring it because I, I, mean, I get it, but I don't get it because being out of control all of my life, that's just part of like, I don't particularly like it mm -hmm. and I don't like a panic attack, but I've never said the word trust. So it's interesting to hear that. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because I also have had experiences of injuries where I felt like my body let me down. You know, to put trust on your body, that sounds like, can I trust that what I'm about to do? It's more about trusting your behavior or trusting the world, you know, than to say, I don't trust my body. Like when I started getting like my cancer and stuff like that. I never said, I don't trust that my body will get cancer again. I always said, I want my body back the way it was. Like I wanted to be in relationship to my body the way it was, which was not so out of control. So I never used trust. So it's interesting to hear the word trust. I'm yeah. trying to put the word on there and going, oh, that's interesting. Or what I want for you is to hear from a different kind of body. You can still trust your body. Or you don't, well, even, it's not even you don't find that useful. My body didn't do it to me. Like, it didn't betray me. Something just happened. You know, like, it didn't betray me. 
My body will always be my body. And if I don't love it for all of a sudden having cancer, that was just part of my body. That's part of the process. So to hear that it'd be, you know, like, like I think on some level, part of me in my life, never used the words, thought that the Tourette's was a betrayal. Well, it's not. It's just my body. It's what was, you know. Um, so to hear someone say, you know, well, it betrayed me. So how do I trust it again? You know, does my body betray me or do I betray my body? Can my body trust me? I ask, can my Tourette's trust that I will love it instead of, can I trust it? Cause then what we do is we disembody ourselves by saying, I don't trust my body. We depersonalize when the body's like, I'm, I've always been here. I just hurt now and I got a scar. I got a this, you know. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And we're also privileging right. that part that says I've been betrayed. Yeah. Right. It's By like this a, thing. Right. As opposed to who knows what would have happened if as your house was burning down, mm -hmm. if someone came to you and said, wow. Yeah. Hold me. Well, yeah, right. We're going to be okay. Right, right. The environment betrayed, right. Or it would have still been there. Could have still been there. He, this thing called Chris, was going to have Tourette's. Mm-hmm. So my work around, oh, well, fuck that, fuck that, isn't going to take it away. Mm-hmm. Maybe I need to scream and be a pissed off, blah, blah, blah. But, after, but when it's all settles down, my body says, you back yet? You want to come home now? So it was just interesting to hear trust because I've never, I mean, I shouldn't say I've never heard that, but when I hear it, I go, oh, I don't trust my body. Like my, my aunt who now is like, you know, she's getting older. She, she can't trust going out of the house without maybe peeing in her pants. Right. So she says, I don't trust my body right now. I'm getting older. And I'm like, well, you can trust that you're going to piss in your pants if you go out. You better trust that because that's what's going to happen. There's a lot of products for that, right? Yes. But the idea is, is when we lose control, we stop trusting. We and start when we're to afraid of shame that's, socially, that's we stop right. trusting. That's right. Because that's this place that is us isn't fitting into right. the values or the assumptions. And going back to this technology, I don't trust that I can find it on my own. Because I don't use that anymore. The body says, please use me the way I've always been wanting to be used. I'm a source. Why do you go to another source? Why do we keep going to another source when the source lives right here? Going back to God. I, again, you know, I was raised in go to the source, but it was always outside my body. The source has always been sitting right there in the pew. That was the source. Why do we keep going outside our bodies for the source? And why do we do that when it goes out of control? We can figure out. We can medication. We can drug. It's like, oh, hello. So there's something about the body and its particularity and its limitedness and its aging in one frame. That mean that means it becomes less mm -hmm. beautiful mm -hmm. or less good. Mm-hmm. And what I'm mm -hmm. hearing you talk about is like this body goodness that this is, it simply is. And the, the judgments and the comparisons yeah. 
don't serve us. Yeah, yeah. Seeking and finding the the, the goodness of, of it as it is, yeah. as it ages. That's right. That's right. And again, I might not trust that I'm going to be able to deal with it. But that's me, not trusting me. I'm not trusting... Maybe I don't trust that I have the techniques or skills to handle it if I go out and have an anxiety attack. But it's different than saying, I don't trust my body. You know, I don't trust that I have, you know, people are coming in not trusting their body. And it's that they just don't trust that they have the ability to handle it when it comes up. And so I bring them to those moments of exposure where they go, oh, and I go, how is it? I got through that. Good for you. So now you know your body might have these during the day, right? But you made it through. Because trust, in some ways, like, you know, when you think of it, it's really regulation. You know, early, early you know, trusting, trusting a stranger, trusting. It's really about, do I know in my own body how to be with, without being in fear, whatever. That's the trust. For me, it's about self-regulation and integration of, 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 of my kind of, again, knowing my body. Is it they're still there? Mm-hmm. Four hours later. And it is also, it's existential. The body? Because the body is going to die. That's right. right. And so it's also, can I, can I be with this place that someday won't be here? Yeah. Yeah. And can I love it? Right. While it goes through whatever it goes through to While go. While it goes through this. Yeah. Yeah. And not privilege the part that may or may not endure. <laughs> yeah. Whatever that witness consciousness is. Yeah. Which, for some of us, that might be what goes first before the body. That's right. That's right. Right? Right. And the body just is there. Right. And then we always say that's horrible for people who have that, oh, they're just a shell now. They're the body. Maybe they needed to finally get there. My, my mother died of a very bad cancer. I mean, it just really took her. And my mother was very vain. She didn't leave the house until her face was on. She would say, I have to put on my face. Say, Mom, you're beautiful. Oh, I got to say that. So she was very vain that way. And the cancer took away that beauty. She couldn't do that anymore. So she was just a shell. But I felt badly because she didn't get the opportunity to be a woman in her body and just letting her body be her body. But that's what ended up happening. But we do that in our society, too. Oh, they're just a shell. Oh, they've lost their mind. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just get into the shell before we go? <laughs> you know? Just be in the shell. And then the, the, the beauty of dance therapy is that. And the somatic psychology. Is. Just be in the shell. Love that shell. Be in the shell. Thank you to Chris Larson, who never ceases to bring laughter into my life and wisdom in our conversations. To Josie Rothwell for the opening music and Erin Kate Dunnick for the closing music. And thank you to our listener for joining us in the return to embodiment. <laughs>